So we're in Mark chapter 4. We'll begin in verse 35, and then we'll take a look at it. Reads this. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took, with, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? This is God's word for us tonight. Let's pray before we jump in and consider it, okay? Father, we're grateful for this time together just to get away from class, to be together, to gather around your word, to um, meet new people, reconnect with old friends. Father, I pray that you would meet us with your spirit wherever we find ourselves tonight. Some of us in here um, don't know what to think about you, don't know what to think about Jesus, don't know what to think about the Bible. Uh, honestly feel a little weird that they're even here tonight. Some of us uh, are here and we, and we feel like we know you, we've trusted you, we've given you our life, and yet we constantly find ourselves stuck in these habits where we're walking away from you, we're betraying you, we're destroying our own spiritual lives, our own life. Some of us in here are just excited and eager to connect and to drink from your word, to eat from your word, to feel replenished and recharged. And Father, Regardless of where we find ourselves tonight, I do pray that you would meet us, that you would teach us, that your spirit would open eyes, soften hearts, unclog ears, that we would be able to see, to behold, and to be transformed by the beauty of your son. We do pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when I was about eight or nine, I guess-ish, I went on this trip with my dad and some of our family friends. It was like a father son getaway thing out in this land. And some of the older men that were there with their sons had brought along some shotguns to shoot skeet with. Now, I grew up in the suburbs of Dallas, Texas, so I've never handled a shotgun before. But there we are out in this area shooting stuff, and, you know, they wanted to give me a turn. And so, you know, as this little 9 or 10-year-old, I grabbed the shotgun, loaded, and no one instructed me on how to hold it, what to do with it. They just trusted, oh, this dude knows what he's doing. So I grabbed this gun, and I put the butt of the shotgun up to my face because I figured you're going to look down the barrel of this thing. And, of course, when I pull the trigger, the kickback smacks, <laughs> smacks my face pretty hard, and I was like, okay, I'm, I'm one and done. One shot is good for me, and that should call it a night right there. And I really don't know... I still don't know how my dad explained whatever welt or black eye was formed on my face when we got back home. How he explained that to my mom. But, you know, and normally, in a situation where you're around something that powerful, that dangerous, there are, you know, safety precautions and instructions and warnings. You know, because the idea is, here's this dangerous, powerful thing. We want to contain this in some way as to make this safer. And I don't know why that got 
bypassed on this particular trip. But the reason I bring all this up is because the, the story that we just read, Jesus, really for the first time in the Gospel of Mark, unleashes his divine power in such a way that is, is, is pretty graphic in the sense that it's just it's, it's pretty intense and mind-blowing. And really, as you think of this, as you ponder on this, you begin to realize no matter how much you try to contain Jesus, in light of what we just read, you can't, he's, you can't make him safe. He will always be this wild, powerful, unpredictable force that you, that you just kind of have to reckon with. So that's what we're going to do tonight. Is we're we're going to zoom in and just look more closely at Jesus' power. And as we look at it, we're really going to see that it does three things. It raises questions... It exposes unbelief, and it awakens love. Okay? So those are the three things we're going to look at. Jesus' power, his power, raises questions, it exposes our unbelief, and it awakens love. Here's the first thing. Jesus' power raises questions. If you look at the story, it picks up in verse 35 there, and it's late in the day, and Jesus says to his crew, his disciples, his entourage, he says, okay, it's late in the day, let's get in the boat, let's cross to the other side. Which would have been a very normal thing because most of his disciples were trained fishermen. So being on the sea day in and day out, that's just what they did. This was, this was their life. So being in the boat, going across to the other side, normal run-of-the-mill territory for them. This is, this is late in the evening, this is getting to be where it's dark. Jesus has been preaching all day long. So they get in the boat and because he's been preaching all day long, he's just wiped. He's exhausted, and so he just go find, he finds a cushion and just crashes kind of on this boat trip. And somewhere in the middle of this journey, verse 37, it says there's this great windstorm that arose. This massive hurricane force wind with abnormally strong power starts rocking the sea. And remember, these are trained fishermen. So normally storms, turbulence, choppy waters would have been a normal thing for them. But they're freaking out because this is not a normal storm. You know, for example, um, my wife and I dated long distance, which sidebar was a horrible uh, thing. Not because of her, but because dating long distance is a horrible thing. But, so we dated long distance. I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana at the time. She was in Atlanta, Georgia. And about every... Six weeks or so, we would drive to go visit each other or fly to go visit each other. And on one of these particular occasions, I'm flying from Baton Rouge to Atlanta, and I'm flying through what what has come to be like the most scarring experience of my life because it was this massive thunderstorm that we were flying through. And, And it was so turbulent, so bouncy of a trip that that the plane was literally dropping at times. Like, you know that falling feeling you get when you, like, jump off of stuff or the roller coaster thing? Like, that's what I was experiencing, but in a plane, which which is not what you want to experience in your stomach in a plane. And so it was so massive, so turbulent. Normally in situations like this, I've come to learn that you can look at the flight attendant's face to determine how severe the storm is because, you know, they're they're used to turbulence, they're used to bumpiness, this would be a normal, this is just part of their job, part of the gig. I, I, I didn't happen to look at the flight attendant's face this particular time because my head was literally in my lap, eyes closed, begging Jesus to keep me alive. But my guess is, if I had seen this particular flight attendant's face, she would have been, or he would have been, incredibly freaked out. And that's kind of what's going on with these, you know, fishermen. These are trained fishermen, turbulence, 
storms on the sea. This is a normal part of the gig, but their reaction tells you that this is a much bigger storm than they were used to. So look at, look at their reaction in verse 38. They go up to Jesus, they wake him up, and here's what they ask him. Do you not care that we are perishing? You know, in other words, I thought you were supposed to be God, and here we are drowning, and you are literally sleeping right now. We are sinking, and you are absent. God is absent and unaware. And this is actually why I love the Bible, because the Bible, people in the Bible are not cartoon characters. You know, they're, they're like as human as you are. They're as human as, as I am. And so they come to him with this question that I think we can all relate to, this question of, look, dude, the, the wheels are falling off. Don't you care? I mean, you feel this in your life too, right? It really does feel sometimes like you are sinking, that you are drowning, that waves are dumping over you, and it is overwhelming, and it feels like God is silent, that he's absent, or he's just unaware. And you've, my guess is, cried out that same exact question. Don't you care? Don't you care that I'm perishing? Don't you care that I'm suffering? Don't you care that I'm going through this? And really, what what the disciples were saying with that question is, if you loved us, you wouldn't let us suffer like this. And I really do think that's something we can all relate to. You know, God, if you really did love me, you wouldn't have let my parents go through that divorce. If you really loved me, you would not have let this terrible thing happen to me when I was younger. If you really loved me, you would not have let that breakup happen. You would not have let that particular thing be taken from me. Whatever. But that's the question that they're raising. And that really, that's a massive question. Don't you care? Because it calls into question, I mean, his power. When you see his power, when you realize, okay, he has power to stop this. That's why they woke him up. They fully believed he could stop it, right? They woke him up. Not because they didn't think he could do anything about it. They just didn't think he actually cared. Don't you care that we're perishing? And that question, don't you care, has that assumption behind it. And the assumption behind it, the the assumption underneath it is, if you really loved me, you wouldn't let me experience pain like this. And And so that's a great question that his power raises. I do think we have to start questioning that assumption, though. The assumption that if God loves me, he would not let anything painful happen to me. Here's why. Um, Some of you have heard me tell this illustration before. But when my wife and I take our children to the doctor, um, sometimes they have to get shots. Because that's what happens when you go to the doctor. You get shots. And so it's it's really this awkward, weird scenario where our little three-year-old, you know, we take her into the doctor's office. And she knows we're the ones that brought her there. She's fully aware that we could stop the doctor from doing what he's about to do. And yet we sit her there, and he pulls out the little syringe, pokes her, and then she, you know, disintegrates into this puddle of tears and pain and looks at us with this look of, I have no category for why you would let this happen to me. It's just a total train wreck of a, of a, of a mess sitting there. And, you know, the, the reality is... Even if I took the time to explain to her why we were doing this, she wouldn't have the categories or the capacity to even understand. A three-year-old doesn't understand about immune systems or 
bacteria. I don't, I don't even understand about that stuff. And so how can I explain it to her? And so the, the, the reality is, you know, if she, she would be deeply wrong, deeply wrong, if she concluded, my parents don't love me because they're making me go through this pain. You know, it's exactly the exact opposite. It's the very reason that, that we love her, that we're, you know, making her go through this pain, as it were. And my question is, could it not be the same way with God? Could it not also be true that God allows pain into your life, not because he doesn't love you, but precisely because he loves you? And therefore, that it would be wrong to conclude, how could you love me for letting this particular thing happen? And, and even if... And even if he explained, here's why this particular thing happened, maybe you don't even have the capacity to understand it. So yeah, of course, his power does raise questions. It raises good questions. But, but Jesus takes us a step deeper. Because in this particular moment, these questions that they're asking, Jesus begins laser beaming to, to what's underneath it. And there is this layer of unbelief. There is a layer of unbelief underneath it. So that's the second thing we're going to look at, how his power exposes unbelief. Okay? So pick, pick up back of the story. They wake Jesus up, and Jesus gets up, and he, it says he rebukes the wind and the sea. And the word that it uses, the language that it uses for, to talk about how he rebukes the wind and the sea is, is the same sort of language that a teacher would use. You know when when kids are just like a classroom of kids are just kind of getting out of control and they're unruly and they're screaming and they're loud and they're just chaotic and eventually a, a teacher kind of has to shout over the top of them, you know, silence! Or something to regain control. That's kind of what Jesus is doing here. He shouts out, peace! Not peace, but like, stop! Enough! And the wind stops. Massive hurricane force wind stops. Now, that could have been a coincidence. But you have to imagine, the sea would have been this choppy, turbulent mess for hours afterward, even if the wind had stopped. I mean, it would have taken a long time for the, wind, for the sea to kind of chill out and level out. But he doesn't just speak to the wind. He speaks to the sea, and he says, be still. And it becomes glass. And here is really where we got kind of get this first just raw glimpse of Jesus' power. This just raw, unleashed power to stop basically this hurricane with his words. I mean, can you imagine really like the, the, the change in sound, the change in volume? Where is this kind of this deafening wind? People are shouting over the wind. There are waves smashing up and thundering against the side of the boat. Water's spraying everywhere. Everybody's screaming. Everybody's hurrying to try to bail stuff out. And then all of a sudden, silence and glass. And all you're hearing is like your heart thumping in your ears and like your heavy breathing. And it's in the middle of that silence that Jesus speaks. And he looks at them and says, why are y'all afraid? And then he, zero, he, really, he laser beams into their heart and asks this million dollar question. Why don't you have any faith? Massive question. Because here they are freaking out. They're terrified. And Jesus' power in that moment exposes them. It exposes them that they don't trust him. They don't trust him. They have every reason in the world to not be afraid, and they're still afraid. Why? 
Why are they still afraid in that moment? Why don't they trust Jesus in that moment? Because certainly they've experienced Jesus' power elsewhere. They've seen him, you know, cast out demons and heal people and do all kinds of stuff. So why, right here and right now, don't they trust him? Here's why. It's because of their focus. Their focus was wrong. Their circumstances were in the foreground of their heart, of their vision, and God was in the background. Their focus was all off. I mean, think about it like this. You know when you're trying to take a picture on your phone? You know, sometimes I'm trying to take a picture uh, of my son on my phone so I can you know, Snapchat my peeps. And uh, he's in front of me. He's in front of me, but he's like all blurry and out of focus. And like the thing that my phone wants to focus on is like the cabinet in the background. It's like, okay, this is annoying. You kind of have to tap it so that it kind of readjusts. You know what I'm talking about? That's kind of what's happening here, is that they're, they're, the reason that the disciples don't trust Jesus is because the thing that is focused and clarified is their immediate circumstances, their situation, the storm. And God is this out-of-focus, distant, blurry thing in the background. And so really what we learn here is that your circumstances are not actually the biggest issue in your life. What's going on in your life is not your biggest problem. It's not your biggest issue. The biggest issue for you and for me is what we do with it. It's how we choose to view it, what what we decide to focus on. Do we focus immediately on the circumstances? Do the circumstances get in the foreground? Or does God get in the foreground? There's tons of examples of this in the Bible. Think about in the Old Testament, you've got um, the the Israelite spies that are going to look at the promised land. Twelve of them go to kind of scope out this land that they're supposed to inherit. They all come back. Ten of them come back and they're like, oh my goodness, there's giants in the land. We can't go in there. They're going to kill us. Two of them come back and say, who freaking cares? We serve the God of the Bible, remember? Twelve dudes looking at the same exact thing. For ten of them... The thing that was in the foreground was their circumstance. For two of them, the thing that was in the foreground was God. Think about the famous story, David and Goliath, right? You've got this monstrous, giant dude, Goliath, who's taunting the Israelite army, and all the Israelite you know, army dudes are cowering in the corner. And David rolls up, and he's like, dude, why has nobody taken this chump out yet? So I, I'll do it, I guess. <laughs> he's like, don't y'all remember that we serve God? Like, God, why are y'all freaking out? That's because everybody's looking at the same exact thing, but everybody else, circumstance was in the front, the foreground. For David, God was in the foreground. It's all about perspective. It's all about what you choose, what your heart chooses to actually focus on. So when something happens in your life, when the wheels come off, as it were, when it really hits the fan, you have a choice as to what you're going to focus on. Is the thing that's going to be in the foreground, is it going to be your circumstances, your situation, whatever is happening? Or is the thing that you're going to focus on God himself? This is why Hebrews 12, 2 says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on him. Glue your attention to him. You can't just glance at him. You have to fixate your eyes on him to put him front and center because if you don't, the, 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 the foreground, background reversal will begin to happen. You know this from your life. I mean, you come to RUF, you go to a church thing, you go to some worship thing, and you get really amped up for Jesus. He becomes front and center in your life, and then slowly that reversal starts happening. So that's why one minute you can really believe deep down, I think God is 
the Lord of the universe, and then for the very next moment you're crippled with loneliness. It's because your circumstances have come into the foreground. Or you can really believe one moment, I, I really do believe that God loves me so much so that he sent his son to die for me. He loves me, he loves me, and yet the very next moment you desperately need other people to like you. You desperately need other people's approval of you. It's this because other people are in the foreground and God's in the background. Or you may think, okay, one moment I, do, I really do believe God is sovereign over everything in the universe. And then the very next moment you're like, I can't sleep because there's so much to do. Foreground. Circumstances come into the foreground. So you have to, you have to begin to commit yourself to fixing your eyes on Jesus, which means that you have to develop habits of keeping him front and center. Simple, time-tested things that the church has always talked about. Communing with him regularly in prayer. Regularly seeing him in scripture. Surrounding yourself with people that will remind you of who he really is. Because if you don't do that, you, the, the foreground-background reversal will begin to happen and you will functionally live your life in unbelief. Because God is so far in the distance, blurry, fuzzy, out of focus, and irrelevant. And here's how, here's how this actually matters to your emotional well-being. Here, here's how this affects your emotional life. Your emotional life, your emotional well-being, when God is in the background, how you are doing emotionally is directly tied to your circumstances. In other words, when things are going well, you're doing really awesome. When things are going crappy, you're in the dumps. That sounds normal, right? But what you're, what, if you think about that, what you are is you're a slave. You're a slave to your circumstances. You are completely at the mercy of whatever's happening around you. Because you're fixated on your circumstances. But if your heart is fixated on Jesus and God is in the foreground, you're no longer an emotionally unstable person. Because your emotions aren't tied to your circumstances, which, is, which are always changing. Your emotions are tied to God, who is never changing. Your emotional well-being can actually transcend your circumstances. So you can be like Peter, who says in 1 Peter chapter 1, even though we suffer, we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That is talking about having a joy that is disconnected from circumstances. Or you can be like James in James 1 who says, Count it as joy when you experience trials and suffering. Again, if God's in the foreground and you're experiencing trials and suffering, it can still be joyful for you. Or you can be like Paul who says in 2 Corinthians 4, We are hard pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. When you fix your eyes on Jesus and you walk by faith in him, your emotional well-being is, is not at the mercy of your circumstances. Don't you see what Jesus is doing? He, he is, by his power, he's just exposing our unbelief and saying, you I'm, I'm regularly in the background, aren't I? And maybe that's why your life is constantly emotionally unstable. Why you're constantly up and down, up and down, up and down. 
See what his power does? It, it raises these questions. Good questions. It exposes our unbelief. Lastly, though, here's what it does. It also awakens love. His power awakens love. And here's where I get this from. It, it's interesting. If you trace the emotional responses of the disciples here, it's pretty interesting because at the beginning of the story, it says that they're afraid. Storm is happening. They're freaking out. Jesus calms the storm. Everything is silent. Everything is calm. And then look at verse 41. It says, after the fact, they were filled with a great fear. A great fear. They're more afraid in the middle of the calm than they were in the middle of the thunderstorm. (coughs) Now, why is that? It's because they begin to realize, I mean, they're in the presence of God himself. This is why they start turning to each other and be like, who is this? What is this? Even the sea obeys him. What are we dealing with here? And they begin to realize that they are in the presence of wild, unpredictable, forceful power that they cannot control, that they cannot tame. And they're more afraid in the middle of the calm than they are in the middle of the thunderstorm. But, you know, just because you're in the presence of somebody really powerful, that, does, that alone doesn't make you love them. You know, if you're in the presence of somebody really powerful, that may, you know, evoke fear, that may evoke respect, but it doesn't, you know, produce love. You know, uh, this, this reminded me, weirdly, of this story that I heard a number of years ago. This is a true news story that just kind of blew my mind when I heard it. But a number of years ago, in this remote part of northeast uh, India, there's this village, and there, were four, there was this herd of 40 wild elephants that made their way into this village. Now, this particular village had farmers that had these big old vats, these big old tin drum vats filled with rice beer that they were fermenting and not growing, brewing. That's, that's the right word. So they're brewing this, you know, tons of rice beer. And these gigantic wild elephants kind of come into this village and they're thirsty and drain, guzzle all of these vats of beer and all, the, all these animals get hammered. <laughs> these wild, enormous elements, elephants are getting plastered. And, and as, the art, as the article says, the, the language that the article uses they went berserk. And so the elephants really are just going crazy and smashing the village, destroying the village. They're out of control. And so everybody in the village runs because they are in the presence of wild, out-of-control power. And there's nothing they can do. There's, I mean, this is a massive, this is a life-threatening situation for them. So they're, they're bolting. And actually, the way that the story ends, sadly, is that six of them uproot uh, a power pole, power line thing. And so six of them get electrocuted and die. Well, I guess that spooked the other 34 and the other 34 run away. But the, the, the sad story for the elephants, the plastered elephants. But the thing that was interesting is this was not the first time that this had happened in this particular region. This is a common thread. Even the article said like they have a, how did it say? It said like the elephants have a taste, have a, have a taste for rice beer or something like that. So anyway, my point is, when you're in the presence of wild, unpredictable power, it produces fear, 
It produces respect. You want to you know, stand clear, but it doesn't produce love. And so for the disciples, they're in the presence of wild, unpredictable, powerful Jesus now. And that doesn't necessarily, I mean, that, that produces fear in them. They melt down in fear. Maybe it produces, like, compliance, like, we'll do whatever you want. Just don't obliterate us. But it doesn't produce love. So, how does his power awaken love then? How does his power really awaken love? Well, really, th- this insight, I'm indebted to um, Tim Keller for showing me because I wouldn't have made this connection otherwise. But he draws out this really interesting connection that really, the, the way that this story in Mark is written, it almost identically parallels that famous Old Testament story of Jonah in the Old Testament. Some of y'all remember this, right? But you have uh, both Jesus and Jonah that are in a boat. Both Jesus and Jonah are sleeping in the boat. Uh, both of them are experiencing this unbelievable thunderstorm out on the sea. Both of them have sailors come to them and wake them up and say, you know, we're dying here. Uh, Both of them experience, you know, this kind of miraculous intervention where the storm stops. And, weirdly enough, in both stories, the sailors are more afraid after the fact than, you know, during the storm. It's like both of these stories are almost completely identical at every point except one. In the Jonah story... In the middle of the storm, Jonah looks at the sailors and he says, look, the only way for y'all to survive is if I die. The only way for you to get out of this alive is if I perish. You've got to throw me over. So they throw him into the sea. And that doesn't happen in the Mark story. Or does it? It's really interesting, if you continue reading the Gospel of Mark, you eventually find yourself of Jesus marching his way to the cross. And what is going on at the cross is is none other than Jesus voluntarily throwing himself into the ultimate storm. The only storm that really does have the power to obliterate you for eternity. The storm of sin, of death, of judgment. And Jesus looks at his disciples, he looks at you, he looks at me, and he says, look, the only way for you to get out of this life alive is if I perish. The only way for you to live is for me to die. And so he does. And he throws himself willingly into the only storm that really does have the power to obliterate us. The storm of the cross. And he perishes so that you and I might live. And so this is why I think it's really, it's ironic, their question. When, in verse 38, when they look at him and they say, do you not care that we are perishing? I mean, what's the most famous verse in the Bible? For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I mean, does, does Jesus care that we are perishing? Absolutely. So much so that he is, he is willing to enter into it and for him to throw himself into the ultimate form of perishing. A brutal form of perishing so that you and I don't have to. And look, and here's where this all ties together. When Jesus becomes in the foreground, and when he is the focus of your heart, and you begin to see that Jesus is this powerful on the one hand, and yet on the other hand is this committed to my good, loves me with this sort of self-sacrificial, radical love, when that is the foreground of your heart, when that's the foreground of your vision, and you can go through life with nothing to fear. 
No reason to panic. No reason to be anxious. No reason to be overwhelmed. You really can face any storm now because you really do know, you really do trust the person who is at the control center of the universe is radically committed to my good. And so really, I want to encourage you, I want to invite you tonight to sit and to soak in his great, powerful love for you. Because when you do that, when you really begin to just sort of meditate and marinate on his love for you, that's what awakens love in you for him. That's what awakens courage in you to go through a life that is really hard, really brutal, with stability, with bravery, with faithfulness. So that's my invitation for you tonight, to fix your eyes on Jesus. Let me pray. Father, give us the eyes to see. Give us the grace to trust you, to see you, that you would become front and center in our vision, that our heart would not be so distracted by our circumstances, as loud and as scary as they may be. But Father, elbow your way into the front and center of our vision, that we may see you, behold you, rest in you, and be wildly courageous knowing that you have powerful love for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.